Crime One and Chaos contains adult language and graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Keep your hands and feet inside the ride, Chaos Kids. I'm Amber. <laughs> and I'm Naomi. And this is Crime, Wine, and Chaos. Chaos. Oh, oh my God. Don't man. look at me, she said. Don't, Don't look, look at, at me. me. <laughs> Don't look at me because I'm stealing your intros. You did so good, though. It was the perfect thank you. intro for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hello, sister. Hello. Hello. This is take two. Well, not take two. Uh, take one. Part two. Part two. Part two. Part two. Take yeah. Oh, what's new? Maybe again, two and a half. Um, I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I am uh, getting ready to like. I'm I'm starting to do that that thing I have to do where I am mentally creating my task list and my shopping list t- and my plan in a, in advance of actually doing the things and writing this all down to be on track to make your son's wedding cake mm-hmm. next week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is what is coming for me next. And since my weekend plans that I had for this coming weekend got canceled for reasons I'm not going to talk about on the podcast, I have a little bit more brain space now to dedicate to that effort. And so now I am, that's the next big thing and coming up in front of me. And that is what I'm focusing on. How about you? What's going on with you? Good. Um, I'm not quite as meticulous with my um, schedule that is overwhelming. I, maybe I would be less overwhelmed if I looked at it that way. I, I'm more of a, just like, keep your eyes down and just plow through, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know. I just, we just need to get through it. I don't even know. Well, you got a couple of shows coming up, right? I have two shows this week, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. back to back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Monday back in the studio and yeah, just, you know, it's, it's, and then it's your all, son's getting time. married. And well, yeah, that's the following week. My son's getting married. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot mm-hmm. happening. There's a lot happening. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's all a busy, good things. Busy- of summer. Yeah. August is going to be a crazy month for it really is. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, we're going to make it, it's okay. We're going to get there and then we're going to look back and go, we did that. And we know what kids through it all. We are going to deliver like we always do because we're like the postal service. Nothing holds us back. Okay. Sissy, (laughs) what are we drinking today? Thank you for asking. I am drinking a menage a trois red. Oh, Classic. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Classic. Thank you. Yep. It's Lovely. delicious. Lovely. What's favorites? the temperature like in your house? It kind of, it got not so hot the last few days. There's been it's, rain here in Seattle for the first time in a long time. Has that been a relief for you or but what? No, no, because it makes it muggy because now it's just wet, but still hot. Look, I feel like you're just never satisfied. Listen, I, <laughs> my podcasting room is a little hot box. I don't know if you've noticed, like I keep... I'll do like the one ear headphone thing so that I can give my one ear a reprieve and then switch because no, I have like now ear I sweat. know what you're doing there. It's so hot that I it's yeah. Oof. Yeah, but I'm that's sorry, all right. Sister. I'm sorry. Right. And then you know what you guys because she lives in that mansion and it's there's there's no there's it's it can't be heated well. She's going to complain about being cold all winter long. So just be prepared, you guys. Just Listen be to what though. Listen to what uh when we had that party a few weekends ago, 
uh-huh. I discovered that uh, while I don't have AC, our uh, gym jam has a summer fan mode. Oh, was that helpful? I was like, yeah, I was like, I feel cold air. Whereas, but it had that mode the whole time, obviously. <laughs> you mean you could have been doing this the whole time? Yes. God dang it. Well, anyway. Now you know. Now yeah, you know. Because you know what we're going to have. I heard something about another quote unquote heat dome coming and uh, it's, it's it's fast approaching. So you, it'll come in handy. It's that doesn't good. work it's for good. me. I need to get to the coast. Sorry. I need to get to the I'm meat. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. Well, you know what? I love that for you. Um Sister, I have a crime for you today. I know you do. And uh yeah, it's I it's kind of it's a it's a big mamma jam over here. So let's like get into it. Okay. Um, I'm gonna tell you about the pulp fat murder. Have you ever heard of that? Pulp fat? Pulp vat. Oh, no. Okay. Well, we're gonna go to Green Bay, Wisconsin. Hmm. November 1992. A call comes into the Green Bay Police Department at 4.45 a.m. from a man who tells them that he works down at the paper mill and that a theft is going to occur that night. At a paper mill? Mm -hmm. He says one of his co-workers, Keith Kutzka, has taken some big piece of wiring that he was going to take home with him that night. This caller wished to remain anonymous and asked that the police just contact the security at the mill and let them know for him. Okay. Okay. So the police do call and they alert the mill security, but no officers are sent, so no report is filed. The call, however, has been recorded. Mm -hmm. So at the end of his shift, Kutska is stopped by security on his way out and they want to search his bag. Okay. He he refuses to let them, and he ends up suspended without pay for five days. Hmm. Two days later, the man calls again. The man is Tom Monfiles, and he speaks to a detective there at the police station, and he tells her he is very concerned about his call to 911 being released. He was afraid of what might happen if Kutska found out that it was Tom who narked on him about that wire that got him suspended without pay. Tom told the detective that Kutska was a crazy biker type, but the detective reassured Tom there was no way in hell that recording would be released. The detective he spoke to did not write a report of this call. Of the The second call? Or, yes, exactly. Mm, So the thing is, it wasn't abnormal for workers to take scraps of shit from the mill, as long as they had an approved scrap pass. Right. Okay. Yeah. So likely what was happening was Tom was trying to get Kutska in trouble because there was a union vote approaching on the possibility of having 12 hour workdays that would shorten the work week. And Kutska was who was a union representative was expected to vote against that schedule change. Okay. And Tom and other workers wanted that schedule. In the <laughs> meantime, Kutska is suspended and he's pissed. He calls up the president of their union or their, at least the local chapter of their union. The paper mill was a union mill and all the men that worked in the paper machine department were members of the United Paper Workers Local 327. He wants to know if she can help him figure out how to identify who made that call so he can file union charges against him. On November 17th, Kutska returns to work and tells all his coworkers that night that he is going, he is going to get his hands on the recording of that anonymous call and he will find out who told on him. (sighs) He had called the police department earlier that day and was told that if he knew the date and time the call came in, they could give him that recording. Right. 
That night, sometime after 10 p.m., Tom calls the police department again. He is scared. He asks to speak to the highest up guy and was forwarded to the shift manager that night. Tom told the officer the story all over again and said he was afraid of Kutska and that Kutska would take him out and Monfiles would never return home. The officer told Tom he wasn't 100% sure that the recorded call couldn't be released to the public and gave him the contact info for someone in the police's communications department so he could find out for sure and put his fears to rest. Tom also tells this officer that he hasn't been sleeping much the past few days. This officer hung up and did not relay this information to anyone in the department, nor did he write a report of the conversation. The next day, November 18th, Tom called the communications department officer who assured Tom that the tape wouldn't be released because it would have to come across his desk first. This officer also did not not write a report about this call. Okay. Wow. On the 19th, Kuska made his own call to the police department. The officer he spoke to located the recording and listened to it. He found no written report about any other calls from Monfiles, but he wanted to make sure he could release this recording. He spoke with an office worker and an assistant attorney with the city. The recording itself had no mention from the police department that promised the caller that he would remain anonymous. And although he was not the officer at the department who would normally release records, this officer decided to do so anyway. He told Kutska that afternoon that if he came down to the department with five bucks and a blank tape, he could get a copy of the call. Uh Uh-oh. That night at work, Kutska let everyone know he would be picking up that tape. (gasps) Oh, no. The next morning, November 20th, Tom was even more scared and called the communications officer again, who told Tom the tape would not be released. Then he transferred Tom's call to the deputy chief of detectives, who also assured Tom the tape would not be released. But the deputy chief didn't do anything to make sure the tape wasn't released. And in fact, it was sitting on a desk not 30 feet from him awaiting release while he was on the phone reassuring Tom. Fuck. And just to really make sure, Tom called the Brown County DA's office, spoke to an assistant DA who believed there were grounds to refuse releasing that tape to the public. This assistant DA called the deputy chief and told him not to release the tape. The chief told the DA he was aware of the situation. The assistant DA offered to call the communications department officer and was told by the deputy that wouldn't be necessary. That tape would not be released. Oh, no. Oh, no. And that evening, Kutska got his copy of the tape. Oh, God. So are they not recording um, their conversations with him so that they're not further creating more public records that can be released? Or was that an nope. error? What do you? I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. Are they intentionally not documenting conversations with Kutska because they are making sure that they're not creating more records that can then be released? Or was that a clerical error on their part? Okay. With Tom, not Kutska. Oh, sorry. With Tom. 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 Right. Um, No, I think they were just being inept. Okay. I thought they were doing him a solid. No. And making sure like, we're not going to document this call because then that's another record that is subject to public disclosure that you call. I think No, I think that they just weren't doing their jobs. Fuck, man. So the next morning, so that evening, Kutska got his tape. He called his coworker, Mike Piaskowski, and played it over the phone. 
Kutska told Piaskowski that the union said that in order for him to be able to file a complaint against Tom, he would need two or three witnesses to identify the voice on the recording as Tom Monfiles, since Tom never says his name on the call. Piaskowski agreed to be one of these witnesses. So the next morning, Kutska went to work, tape in hand, marched into paper machine, paper machine number seven's control room, and played the tape in front of Piaskowski, Tom, and Uh-oh. Randy LePac. And he asked Piaskowski to, quote, name that tune. And At Tom point, is right there? Tom's right there, <sighs> and he admits to being the one who made the call to these other three men in the room. Kutska ended up playing that tape for like 20 coworkers that morning, and he got them all riled up and, they, and all pissed off at Tom, right? Fuck Tom. Tom got me suspended without pay. Tom's not a brother, right? That's not how it's done in the union. And then the actual events get fuzzy here, but sometime between 7.34 a.m. and 7.45 a.m., because I think these guys work like something akin to like graveyard slash early morning shifts. Okay. This is the time scheduled. 7.34 is the time scheduled for a turnover on one of the machines, which is basically when they take one of the paper, they take a paper roll off and they start a new one. Mm-hmm. Tom disappears. He's not at his station. And then he doesn't come home after his shift. And his oh. car is still parked at the mill. Then the police are called and a search ensues. And they search the mill everywhere with no sign of him. And finally, they decide they need to check the pulp vat, a two-story oh, tank containing a mud-like mixture of water, chemicals, and paper pulp. 36 hours after Tom first went missing, the drained vat reveals Tom's body in the bottom of the vat with a rope around his neck attached to a 49-pound weight. He drowned in the pulp vat? Well, initially, police considered both suicide and homicide as the possible cause of death, and then on December 9th, they announced it was murder and a homicide investigation is underway. According to the autopsy, Tom had been badly beaten, suffered a major head injury, all before he went into the pulp vat. His cause of death was strangulation and suffocation from the rope around his neck and the ingesting of the pulp mixture. Oh, no. That is awful. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Tom Monfiles was survived by his wife, Susan, and two young children, 11-year-old Teresa and 9-year-old John. Tom was the third of six kids born and raised in Green Bay. His youngest brother, Cal, and him were very close, even with 10 years difference between them. Tom spent time in the Coast Guard, but when he got back, he and Cal spent a lot of time together. Tom bought and remodeled rental properties, and sometimes Cal helped with that. They also liked to water ski together. Tom's family described him as a self-starter and a jokester. He also enjoyed roller skating, which is what he was doing when he met Susan while he was stationed in New Jersey. That's awesome. (laughs) Roller skating. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Tom had worked at the paper mill since 1983 after his stint in the Coast Guard and some time working in construction. Tom's dad, Ed, as well as Tom's uncle, had also worked at the mill. Ed had retired in January of 1992, just 10 months before Tom died. And Tom knew lots of people that worked at the mill and was a bit of a social butterfly. 
the mill was a really good place to work. It was the kind of place that paid well, likely because of the strong unions a lot of the employees were members of, and where someone would work full-time, they could work full-time and take care of a family on one income. Some of the hourly employees there made upwards of 100000 a year in income plus benefits. And in the early 90s, that was really good pay. No shit. The weekend of Tom's death, Cal had been up north hunting and only found out about his brother being even being missing when he got back around eight o'clock on the evening of the 22nd. So he heard that Tom was dead just hours later. Oh no. The investigation was not very fruitful. There was no blood stains, no murder weapon, or any real evidence of any kind to indicate that there was a struggle that had taken place in the mill that day. Police were relying heavily on interviews with people who were at the mill that day. And so they followed mill workers, monitored their movements, conducted lots of interviews, parked outside their homes, dug through their trash, recorded conversations. I mean, obviously considering where he was found and how he's, he was beaten up. It was obvious that like multiple people that he worked with had done this to him. That's what the police were going with. Yeah. As this was kicking off in December, Kutska, Piaskowski and Lepak, the three dudes that were all in the control room that morning when, when Kutska came in with and confronted them about the, the tape, right? They were all suspended from work without pay for about three months because of their confrontation of Tom in the control room that morning. And in March of 1993, Kutska was fired and the other two men returned to work. It basically came down to the fact that Kutska had been harassing and intimidating Tom and that was unacceptable behavior. Well, yeah. Also, like all of this was because of a five-day suspension. Uh Not that that's not a big deal, but then you go and get yourself suspended for three months and then fired. Like, the fuck, dude? You fucking idiot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh In May of 1993, Susan filed a lawsuit against Kutska, Piaskowski, and Lepak, as well as Michael Johnson, Michael Hearn, Dale Bastin, and Ray Moore that alleged they were involved in intimidation and conspiracy that led to Tom's death. In August of 1993, James River Corp., the company that owned the mill, offered a $25,000 reward for anyone who provided information on how Tom was killed. By November, that had increased to 35000 through contributions of other businesses and individuals. It was January 1994 when Detective Winkler stepped in as the lead investigator on the case. There had been no developments in the little over a year since the investigation began, and he decided he was going to be the one to solve this case. The working theory amongst the investigators was that Kutska, Piaskowski, Johnson, Hearn, Bastin, and more had all been party to the murder of Tom and the removal of all evidence of the crime. Obviously, Kutska was the instigator, and he rallied the other five men to anger, and together they attacked and beat Tom, then tied that weight to his neck and dumped him in the pulp vat. Oh, God. Detective Winkler finally got the proof he needed in the form of witness testimony from both David Weiner and Brian Kellner. Six months after Tom's death, Wiener got in touch with the police department saying he recalled a memory from the morning Tom went missing. He said he remembered seeing Bastin and Johnson walking toward a pulp vat between the number seven and number nine control rooms, and they were about six feet apart, hunched over, and carrying something between them. He claimed he recalled this, quote, repressed memory While at a wedding reception in May of 1993, after hearing someone at the reception mention the name Rodell. What? I'm sorry. What? I don't know. 
Then in November of 1993, Wiener shot and killed his younger brother in the midst of an argument and was charged and convicted of second degree reckless homicide. Okay, Wiener. Wiener, who was 31 at the time, claimed to be under a great deal of personal stress when he shot and killed his 28-year-old brother, Tim, at Wiener's home. Wiener's co-workers said he'd taken time off work because of stress related to Tom's case. Wiener's neighbors said that police had his house under surveillance. Wiener's whole scene was a mess at this time, including getting a new unlisted phone number, filing for divorce, and listing his house for sale. Fuck. Anyway, the other piece of what would end up being crucial evidence was testimony from Brian Kellner. Kellner spent eight hours in an interrogation with Detective Winkler in November of 1994 and signed a statement saying that one night that summer, while he was out drinking with Kutska at the Fox Den bar, Kutska drunkenly reenacted the beating of Tom using the bar owners and other drunks around them as actors in this dramatization. Kellner claimed that he had 12 beers that night and Kuska had close to 40. 40 beers? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, that's not the, the main part of what you just said, but I, isn't that death? Right. I, I don't okay. know. And doing a I don't dramatization in the, what the fuck? Who are these right. people? Okay. I, exactly. So with these statements in hand on April 12th, 1995, police arrested Kuska, Piaskowski, Johnson, Hearn, Bastin, and Moore at the paper mill. They would all be tried together in one joint trial and would forever after be referred to as the Mon Files Six. Shit. So on September 27th, 1995, close to three years after Tom's death, the trial of the Mon Files Six began. They each had one or two attorneys of their own representing them and were unable to get their trials separated into individual trials. The jury was brought in from another county to ensure more impartiality since this case was so big in Green Bay and the community was super divided about it. Yeah. The prosecutor's approach was to paint a picture of this angry mob of union brothers who beat Tom to unconsciousness and covered up that crime by tossing him to his death in the pulp vat. The theory being that the motivation was ultimately money in the form of their good paying jobs that they would lose if they were caught beating up a coworker. Well, yeah. Yeah. So all of the, but all of the prosecutors evidence was testimony from Wiener Kellner, a couple of inmates that claimed one or more of the six had told them about their part in the beating or killing of Tom, some other mill workers who were afraid of one or more of the six defendants and a woman who claimed that Kutska had told her he killed Tom. There was zero physical evidence. As for the defense, pretty much all of their attorneys used the, it wasn't my client who had anything to do with this murder, but these other five guys are all sus approach, right? Oh, God. So all um, of them were throwing each other under the bus. A six-way a couple- finger point. That's right. <laughs> They're all wearing Spider-Man outfits. And a couple of them even suggested that Wiener was the real killer. Uh It also came up at trial that Detective Winkler aggressively questioned people even after they said they did not remember or did not have information and that some of those people just happened to recall things they initially did not recall. The trial had run for about a month when on October 28th, 1995, around 6.25 p.m., the jury came back after only 10 hours of deliberation and found all of them guilty. The paper the next morning in Green Bay, the headline was guilty, 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 guilty. All six were sentenced to life in prison. 
Shit. Susan hmm. Monfiles would go on to sue the police department for negligence leading to her husband's death. All those officers and detectives who told Tom his call would remain anonymous had failed to write any reports about his calls until after he was found dead in that pulp vat. Fuckers. And then they're scrambling to do damage control. Did they backdate it? I don't know about that. Oh, God, those fuckers. Okay. And based on the working theory of why Tom was murdered, it could be argued that the police department in Green Bay was directly responsible for failing to protect Tom from an angry mob. Mm-hmm. She won that lawsuit on appeal in 1997 for $2 million. Good. And while Detective Winkler and then DA Zakowski are as certain as ever that they got it right and justice was served, more and more are questioning if the state of Wisconsin did actually get it right. Oh. Tom's brother, Cal, is pretty sure that they didn't. Oh. He says that every day that goes by, it all makes less and less sense to him. The same year that Susan won that lawsuit, Detective Winkler was placed on leave for several months while the department conducted an internal investigation. He ultimately retired in November of 1998. At a post-conviction hearing requesting a new trial for both Bastin and Johnson, Kellner testified that he lied at the initial trial and said that he did so because Detective Winkler threatened him with losing his job and custody of his kids if he didn't give the detective what he needed to arrest the Monfile Six. All six convicted men worked to file appeals. Piaskowski exhausted all his appeals, then filed a petition in federal district court for a writ of habeas corpus, which is a request to be brought before a judge to challenge unlawful custody. A U.S. District Court judge granted the writ and ruled that there was insufficient evidence to convict Piaskowski. The state appealed that decision, and in July 2001, the district court's decision was upheld by the U.S. Seventh Court of Appeals. Piaskowski was, in effect, acquitted and unable to be tried again. He spent six years in prison. Wow. The other five thought this was their chance to also be exonerated, but none of them were successful in their attempts to get their convictions overturned or their sentences reduced. What? Two books have been written and a documentary has been made, which is where I started with all this, that points to the very real and likely possibility that Tom Monfiles actually did die by suicide. But he was beaten. Even his brother Cal believes this is actually what happened. The Innocence Project in Minnesota was instrumental in getting an evidentiary hearing for Kutska, where new experts and witnesses testified to this very theory. And wow. there is plenty of evidence to suggest that this is, in fact, what happened, because none of the Monfile 6 has ever changed their assertion that they were, they, they were anything other than not guilty. And Cal says that there were a few odd things that Susan didn't said in the aftermath of Tom's death that made him think Tom may have taken his own life, including a night very soon after Tom died where Cal heard Susan cry out that Tom had killed himself. Also, she claimed to have found notes in the ceiling of her and Tom's bedroom that indicated Tom's death was a suicide. Hmm. A friend of Tom said that Tom had told him a story or had told him stories about his time in the Coast Guard and that the thing he did the most during his time there was retrieve the bodies of people who had died by suicide jumping off a bridge. He said very often these people would tie something heavy around their necks to make sure that they would die. Oh my God. And then there's the knots themselves on the rope used around Tom's neck and that weight. These knots were a particular type. Knots that would definitely have been learned while serving in the Coast Guard. Cal even found knots exactly like them on ropes he found at Susan and Tom's house. Wow. 
There was also, I forgot to write this down, but there was also a whole section of this evidentiary hearing that was based on the autopsy and the physical evidence on his body. And there was like a, a, you know, a review of that autopsy. And it was noted that there's no way that the, um, that the coroner or whoever the medical examiner at the time could have known for certain that, that those, um, wounds on his body came from a beating and not from the giant rotating fan at the bottom of the pulp vat. Oh, in fact, there is a, the wound on his skull was like basically the exact dimensions of the edge of one of those blades. Oh God. And then especially if he had jumped in and like tied the thing around in his neck and dove into the vat alive, then he still would have gotten those beat up and battered in the vat while the blades were spinning while he was still alive before he actually died. Right. So, so you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's no way to be certain that he was beaten by multiple people. It absolutely could have been the vat that did that to his body. Yeah. Yeah. Oh shit. And more and more, it was becoming clear that Detective Winkler wasn't the fair and upstanding detective he claimed to be, that he did use intimidation factors to get the statements he wanted out of witnesses, that he did harass people, including Kellner's children, in pursuit of testimony that fit the narrative he had crafted of the events that night that Tom went missing. He's interrogating children? Mm-hmm. You got to watch this documentary. It's called Beyond Human Nature. It's, I actually, I actually rented it on prime. That's how I heard about the story initially. Anyway. Yes. Yes. (sighs) Cal says Tom's brother that Tom may have been dealing with undiagnosed mental health issues and was having problems in his marriage. She also thought Tom was afraid that he would lose his job when people found out he had reported a problem outside of union channels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Susan hasn't spoken publicly on any of this really. And like, why would she, she won a $2 million settlement based on the notion that Tom's death was a murder that may have been prevented had the police like done a better job of protecting him. And then I'm certain she received a life insurance payout, which she wouldn't have received had Tom's death been ruled a suicide. Right. Right. Detective Winkler and the district attorney that prosecuted the case, who's a judge now, both assert that they were right and the Monfile Six are guilty as fuck and any other theory is fucking bullshit. (sighs) That's pretty extreme for somebody, a coworker that you're pissed at because of, that's real fucking extreme. And to get five other people to be like, yeah, that sounds logical. Let's, yep. let's and do here's that. one of the things that one of the things that Cal says in his interview, because he's interviewed extensively in this documentary that I watched, Tom's brother Cal. And one of the things he says is like, it makes way more sense to me that one woman is keeping something to herself than that six people committed a crime and not one of them has let it slip what happened. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. That whole thing about criming alone, right? Like when, yeah. every time we have a story about more than two people. It's like somebody that's going to go bad. Yeah. Your mouth mm-hmm. shut, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one good thing did come out of this whole mess in that, uh, October of 1993, Wisconsin state's legislature passed the Monfiles law, which tightens security for releasing records that may lead to someone being put in harm's way. Mm-hmm. The lawsuit Susan filed against the police department also set a precedent that the police may be forced to pay damages for endangering the life of an anonymous informer. Good. 
Dale Baston died on June 23rd, 2018 at the age of 77 while living at a community care center that he had been released to less than a year prior. Basically, he had been dying in prison and they let him out for hospice care. Mm. He was in prison for like 22 years. God. 20, 23 years, 20, 22 and a half years. Mike Hearn was released on parole on December 18th, 2018. He served 23 years in prison. He was 31 when he was convicted and 54 when released. Ray Moore was paroled on July 2nd, 2019. He served 23 and a half years, convicted at age 49. He was 72 when released. Michael Johnson was paroled on July 3rd, 2019. He also served 23 and a half years. He was 48 at the time of his conviction and 71 at the time of his release. Keith Kutzka is 70 or 71 now. He had a parole hearing set for some time this year that I couldn't find any other information about. So at this point, he's at 28 years served, all paroles denied so far, and he's still in prison. Um, he's the last of the six still incarcerated. God. And... Yeah. I mean, the, the innocence project from Minnesota has been involved. Like there's an attorney that's on board who's been working towards, you know, helping overturn these convictions and prove that Tom actually died by suicide. Cal is a part of this effort. He has become friends with Mike Piaskowski, who uh, is a kind of a, a founding member of a group that meets regularly. That's like friends and family of these six guys that have been trying for years and years and years. There's been two, yeah, I think there were two different books written about it, plus this documentary that came out earlier this year um, that explores the possibility that these six men were all railroaded and yeah. not actually murderers. Oh. And that is the pulp fat murder. Or is Jeez. it? God, you know, I think it says a lot that um, Tom's brother is. I agree. I mean, that says a lot, especially with how close they were. And mm-hmm. oh, man. That's awful. That is awful. I mean, no, I'd never oh. heard of it until I watched that documentary. So, um, oh. yeah, yeah. I mean, by all accounts, this Kutska guy was an asshole, but that doesn't make being an asshole doesn't make you a murderer. No, no. You know? <sighs> wow. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> that was a good one, sis. I, well, not good. That's terrible. No, it's terrible, but it was, you know, now you know. Now you know. Oh my God. Thank um, you for that. You're so welcome. Do you have, mm. do you have an upbeat chaos? Are we going to laugh till we cry today? No, I'm uh, sorry. Well, I mean, it, sister. <laughs> fuck, sorry. You know what? They can't all be bangers. You know what? The last two chaos stories you've told me, I like, <laughs> cried. I laughed so hard. Oh man. There's been merch. Shit. There's been street fairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No street so, fairs today. Okay. Okay. <laughs> This one's a little bit different than the huge. So, okay. okay. Um, it, we're going to go to July of 1997. Okay. Okay. Uh, Crystal and Jesse, no last names, please. Um, they okay. <laughs> Noted. It's they like are, Cher. It's like. Yes. Yeah. Madonna. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 100%. Mm-hmm. They're married. They're both 30. And they had been trying for several years to have children but were unsuccessful. Okay. Jesse himself was adopted. So he decided maybe his, uh, you know, destiny in life was to adopt as well. So they see a nine-year-old girl on a website for an orphanage in Moscow. And when they- Okay, I'm already like, I don't know about this. Okay. I mean, 
Yeah. Is this another one of those fucking, she's not really nine, she's like 27 kind of situation? No, no, but this is another, uh, this is another adoption from Russia where it's like, rat row. Okay. All mm-hmm. right. So they see her and they immediately felt like she was their daughter. So when okay. they get the medical records from the agency, Carol Lee, that's the girl, is described as tender, obedient, friendly, and charming. Also, I hate the word obedient. Hate it. It's gross. Remember when we went to that wedding for one of her cousins and she promised to honor and obey and we all like gagged and almost died in the middle of the ceremony while we were supposed to be quiet and respectful of this wedding? I can't. Yeah, it was like the only time when I actually did have something to say when they asked for objection. (laughs) I was like, I fucking object to that. Objection, your (laughs) honor. She is not going to promise to obey, right? Fuck like, that. we're not doing that, you know, right? Like, she figured it out. She left that man. It's fine. That's true. Anyway. That's true. Also, remember the hairy hands? Anyway, keep going. <laughs> they were so hairy. So hairy. The hairiest ha- the hairiest back of a hand I have ever seen on a man. Anyway, I think sorry. there was some sort of teen wolf thing happening there. I'm so sorry. I'm so sidetracked. She's no. obedient, which is gross. She's sweet. She's lovely. She's nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Crystal and Jesse knew that they were there were risks with adopting an older child, but they were willing to take those risks. So they traveled to Moscow. And then from Moscow, they take an eight hour train ride from Moscow to a village called Boravice. That's where the orphanage is. Okay. They had spent nearly $30,000 in total for this process. And they arrived at the orphanage and Carol Lee immediately calls Crystal mama. I mean, she's Mama. Though, right? It's like, that's weird. <laughs> Something's not right here. I am, my spidey senses are tingling. I can't, I just, okay. But it worked on, it worked, it worked. Mm-hmm. So while, <laughs> while at the, I don't know how this worked out, but while at the orphanage, they also adopted a three-year-old boy. I don't know if it was like <laughs> a just like, It was like a buy one, get one. <laughs> yeah. Fuck? I don't really know. One, they came home with two. Like, what Mm -hmm. is happening? Oh my god! God. Do you remember? Us. (laughs) Do you remember the Payless Bogo? I fucking loved Payless Bogo. You know what? Just completely side tangent. I saw this. I was watching Reels the other day, and I saw this whole thing about how like perception is everything. So Payless like took one of their stores one time, and they like closed it. They like covered it up. They revamped the whole store and made it look super high end. And like they gave it a different name that was like some kind of like, you know, fancy play off the word Payless. I can't remember exactly what the word was that they made mm-hmm. it. But anyway, so they made its name and then they set it all up so that like all of the shoes were displayed like you would find them in like a really, really high end like designer store. And they put like ridiculous prices on all the shoes, like hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on all these shoes. And then they invited like all of these designers and influencers and whatever to like come to this grand opening of the store. And everyone came in and was like ooing and aahing on all over the merchandise and talking about how well-made all of these shoes were mm-hmm. and how beautiful they were and how they were worth every penny. And it uh-huh. was literally an experiment in like, it's snobbery. Yeah, like what a bunch of bullshit it all is. Uh-huh. Anyway, Bogo God. Bogo adoption. Bogo adoption. So they get a three-year-old boy. They name him Joshua. They bring both kids back to a new home in a suburb of Atlanta. Okay. And 
When they first got home, they said that Carol Lee was withdrawn and angry. They figured that this was normal and that it would take some time and love for her to adjust and become comfortable. Mm-hmm. Jesse worked as some sort of computer programmer and Carol, Carol, Crystal quit her job to stay home with the kids and help both of them adjust and bond with her and each other. Okay. But Carol Lee's behavior became worse. By her second Christmas with her new family, she um, had gotten a bike for the first time and she was outside learning how to ride. Crystal said it was a great morning. The kids were happy. They go back inside and Crystal is uh, doing some chores. And that's when she hears Joshua screaming. Crystal says that she found Carolee holding her then four-year-old brother, Joshua, over the railing of their 30-foot high deck. (gasps) Oh, this is some like Omen, like Damien shit going on here or something. Oh, no. (laughs) Ah. When she asked Carol, child, whatever, oh, I don't know. The good like, son. A, mm-hmm. yeah, good son. There's a lot of movies about this kind of shit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like every parent's nightmare. It's, I mean, that's where like, where like the changeling kind of, you know, legend or myth comes from too, right? Like this, this fear of something coming and stealing your child and replacing it with something that's not your child. And anyway, I don't know what movie it was, but Jade used to do this and, for the, I mean, Jade was and still is like the sweetest ever, but Jade had like bad dreams and anxiety a lot as a little kid. And she would come into my room almost every night, but she wouldn't say anything. She had that really long hair and she would just stand at the side of my bed and I would wake up and she would just be like this, <laughs> so staring at me. With, yeah. And I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> a lot. It happened a lot. And I was like, don't do so that. Creepy. Mm-hmm. So, Paranormal uh, activity, that's the one. Mm-hmm, that's the yeah. movie that shit happens in. So Crystal asks uh, Carol Lee what she's doing, and she says she's going to kill him. Oh. So, oh yeah. Okay. So, right. uh-huh. Crystal said that Carol Lee told her that she was hearing voices and seeing things like snakes. She said that the voices were telling her to kill her brother, Joshua. Oh, this girl is schizophrenic. So Crystal and Jesse take her to a facility where she receives four months of psychiatric care before their insurance runs out and Carolee had to return home. Like four months inpatient? Yeah. That's intense. Yeah. And she's like 11 at this point. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. But this is like the stuff that like the gal in the Slender Man murder, like she was like that. She mm-hmm. had that same, like she was schizophrenic from the get. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like it came on later in life, like it does for a lot of other people. Yeah. Oh, God. So, um, the, so Carolee comes home and she's still saying that she wants to kill Joshua. Mm. So Crystal and Jesse install an alarm on her door. They have cameras all over the house. Carolee is not allowed to be alone with Joshua. One of the psychiatrists that treated her said that Carolee has rage and anger inside of her and she is a risk to the family and that there is clear evidence of an attachment disorder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's given medication, but they don't work. Carolee and or Crystal and Jesse both said that they loved her, but they're afraid of her. Oh my God. It's just heartbreaking. Afraid of your child. I can't. can't. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So, um, Crystal and Jesse woke up one morning at 3 a.m. to find Carol Lee trying to strangle the family dog. <sighs> okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they end up sending Joshua 600 miles away to grandma's house to live for a while while they try to figure something out. <sighs> Poor Joshua. They, I know. They go over and over the initial report from the, the agency. And the only thing that there was in there that could be perceived as negative was a developmental delay. But they understood that that just meant she was slow to learn. And yeah. Yeah, and that it wasn't until after she was adopted that they were provided a more thorough detailing of Carolee and her past. It said that her birth mother left her dirty and hungry and that she had antisocial personality disorder. Mm-hmm. They also learned that Carolee was housed in a special dorm for children with disabilities at the orphanage, and that information wasn't shared with them. I mean, we saw this coming, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. However, the representative from the agency said that the adopted parents did have all of the access to the papers at the time that they were at the orphanage and that no information had been withheld from the family. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. And what are they going to do? They're in Atlanta and the orphanage is in like, you know, bumfuck nowhere in in Russia. Like, what's their recourse (laughs) at this point? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. So while Joshua is away at grandma's, Crystal and Jesse make the difficult t- decision to return Carol Lee to Russia. Oh, no. But they tell her that she's going to another hospital. They don't tell her that she's going back to Russia. Back to the orphanage? Well, I'll tell you. Of all the psychiatrists who treated Carol Lee, there was one in the U.S. Um, that... Uh, disagreed with the others. He said that Crystal and Jesse were cool and distant and that Carol Lee was frightened of them, that he didn't see anything wrong with her. She tried to kill her little brother and the dog. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. I'm sorry. (sighs) (laughs) There's always that one guy. Actually. She just needs a little extra love. So Crystal and Jesse say they use all of their savings to take Carolee to a psychiatry center in Moscow that specializes in children from Russian orphanages. Okay. That is a lot to unpack because that means that (laughs) there's a need for that. (laughs) There's an orphanage to psychiatry facility pipeline going on. In Russia. You know what I'm saying? Like, what the fuck? Well, you know, they either yes. end up in one of those schools, they either end up in one of those schools becoming like Olympic athletes or they end up in a psychiatric facility. What? No in between. There's no in between. I- so the deal was, uh, as far as Carolee knew, was that she was going to stay there for two months and that Crystal and Jesse would return for her. But Crystal and Jesse go home and With they annul. no intentions of ever returning for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have their adoption annulled. Wait, annulled? Like a marriage? What? Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I want to know what you, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> on saying never mind to an adoption. Is that the end of the story? No, there's more. Okay, keep going. Okay, well, so this all was initially covered 
on 48 Hours, sort of in real time while it was happening in 1997, while Carol Lee was 11. They're covering this story. I'm so sorry. 20, they're on 48 Hours? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They took their story to 48 Hours. Yes. So, ah. the re- yeah. Okay. So it's really kind of sad. So the reporter of, that did this story, he still works for 48 Hours. And I can't remember his name now. He's a pumpkin. But there's all these clips where he's by himself with Carol Lee. And he really got attached to her. And she's crying and saying, like, I didn't do any of these things. Like, none of these things happened. And what, what, they're Crystal telling. And Jesse are just making this up? Yeah. She was like, they're telling me to say that I hear voices and they're telling me like all these things. And she's like, I love my brother. I wouldn't hurt my brother. And okay. So 20 years later, the same reporter who never forgot about her wants to find her and see how she's doing and what, what the deal is. Right. Is this another episode of 48 hours? This is another episode of 48 hours. What? Uh huh. Okay. And this guy, like he was so, he actually wanted to adopt her himself, but he like wasn't able to at the time, but he did go on to adopt a little, a little dude from Africa. And he's like 19. Now he adopted him as a single dad. I mean, it's like, it's adorable. Like he just really, okay. Okay. So 20 years later, he finds her. She, her name is Sabrina. She's married with four children. She lives in North Carolina. She's in North Carolina. mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She said from her perspective, Joshua was the favorite and she felt like she wasn't good enough. She said because Joshua was the center of their world, she wasn't able to connect with Crystal and Jesse and she became suicidal. And that is when she made up a story and told Crystal that she was seeing things and hearing things because she wanted out of their house. What? Mm -hmm. She wanted to be taken back to Russia? Uh Uh-huh. She wanted the fuck out of there. She also said that day on the deck, uh, Sabrina said that Crystal asked her to go get her brother because he was screaming on the deck and she tried to pick him up and walk down the steps, but he was almost as big as her. And so she was just struggling to walk down the deck stairs with him and she was never trying to kill him. She wasn't dangling him over anything. How did she end up back in the States? Uh, We'll get there. She said that she was telling everyone that she was trying to kill Joshua because Crystal told her that that's what she was supposed to say. What Mm -hmm. the fuck? Mm -hmm. I I don't have words for this. This twist, I did not see this coming. Wild. So today, Sabrina is not on any medication. She has no mental illness. She, when she uh, was taken to the hospital in Russia, she, she knew that they weren't coming back for her. She was fine with that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. After two months, she was released from the hospital in Russia and adopted from a family in North Carolina. And everything was great. She thrived and it was great. She, after high school, she spent two years in Africa volunteering and providing medical care. She met her husband, Phil. They married in 2014. They have three daughters and a son. She's super happy in a good place. She said after she became a mother, she found Crystal on social media and sent her a message telling her her side of the story and says she doesn't have any hard feelings towards them, but she herself would never return a child. Whoa. 
I think they fell in love with Joshua and decided that they just didn't want her. But they couldn't go back on it because they'd already make, made this commitment to adopt her. Yeah. These people are mm. crazy pants. But they never <laughs> like went back and re-interviewed them or Joshua, right? Nope. They refused to be interviewed for the follow-up and they refused to ever provide their last names. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, okay. At, at perspective. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have this cat. <laughs> uh huh. Right. We talked mm-hmm. about this recently because you were considering taking a cat that was maybe going to be rehomed. Mm-hmm. who was like uh, spraying everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. And I had this period early in, in, um, when I adopted him, I, I got shadow from like some coworker of, um, our moms and, mm-hmm. uh, he was a little over a year old when I got him. So he was already like litter box trained and everything and had all the shots. They just needed to rehome him, whatever reason. So I took, I took him and sometime in that like first or second year, all of a sudden for no reason I could figure out, he started spraying all over the place. And it was, it was crazy making and it smells awful. And it was like, he was ruining furniture and carpet. I mean, it was just right. I was dealing with that for a long time and I was doing all the things I was taking all the suggestions and I was trying to figure out how to fix it. And at the peak, at the peak, I remember calling a friend of mine so frustrated. I was like crying And I was like, I've been thinking about getting rid of this cat, but I felt like shit for thinking about getting rid of this cat because I had decided to take this cat and this cat was my responsibility. And I loved this cat and I wanted to care for this cat. And I would feel like a piece of fucking shit, like an absolute monster. If I was just like, get rid of this cat because it's not acting the way I wanted to act. Right. Yeah. Ultimately I did figure it out and he doesn't do that anymore. And he hasn't done that for years and years and years. And it's fine. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was a cat. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. When you take on the responsibility of another human being, you don't get to just decide, like, two years later, like, I don't fucking want to anymore. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Especially I mean, since they went into it knowing. I mean, it ended up not being true, but... Ultimately, they said, yeah, we know it's going to be harder for an older child who already has trauma, who already has established these, you know, boundaries and walls have gone up and all the things. Yep. Like you intentionally sought out a child who was going to be more challenging. Yes. And then said, this is challenging. Never mind. Yes. Assholes. And not only that, but by all accounts, or at least by Sabrina's account, it, that wasn't how it went down at all. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. This sounds very, I mean, this is really insidious. Like, this is really, like, creepy behavior on the part of Crystal and Jesse. Like, I, I am, I mean, it would be, it, it would be one thing if it really went down like that. Like if it really went down the way they said it went down and she really was that kid, right? Like a hundred percent, that is rough. And, but you still, you still try to figure out a way to help this kid, right? Right. Like mm-hmm. I, oh. mm-hmm. and we're talking about a kid who is already orphaned, already mm-hmm. abandoned 
by her biological parents, right? So like yes. not just trauma, but like the deepest wound of trauma, right? Pure abandonment by your own biological mother. And yes. then to do this to her again. Yes. Yes. I, no, these people, these people are the monsters. Like they're, yeah. they're, I, wow. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is crazy pants, sister. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. <sighs> yeah. Well, I know that story now. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry <laughs> about you. that. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, sister, we did it. We did we it. Did we did it. We recorded two episodes back to back. We made it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chaos Kids, remember to go and uh, give us a, a, a rating and a review on whatever service you stream on because. Well, mostly because that just makes us feel good about ourselves and we need all the validation we can get, but also because it helps other people find us. The more people that like us, the more people will look for us and uh, listen true. to us. And, um, you know, we do bonus content. We got an episode every month that we uh, put up on Patreon. So if you're a patron of ours, you can listen to that. We have a Chaos Kids Club on Patreon that you can be a member of for $5 a month. It is the cost of... Like less avocado than a pack, toast. A pack of cigarettes, <laughs> and yeah, you can't even get a pack of cigarettes for five bucks a month. So Mm-mm. or avocado toast, uh-huh. uh, or a Starbucks, so whatever. The, yeah, or yeah. So go join, go join the club and get that bonus content. And once we get to twenty, because we we every time we get to ten more, we we do a virtual wine night. We are itching to do a virtual wine night, you guys. So yeah. come on, let's do it. Get on the chaos. Run all the socials, all the things. And uh, yeah. yeah, I love you. I love you. And that was this, really fucking chaotic fucking today. Chaotic. <laughs> yeah, it was. Goodbye. Bye. Wine and Chaos is produced by 8th Direction Records. Artwork by Joshua M. Davis. Music by Paul Abner. If you would like to support the show, you can visit our Patreon page at Crime, Wine, and Chaos forward slash Patreon. Cheers. He calls up the president. Okay, Wiener. <laughs>